Take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus chapter 16. We're in the, trying to get back to our series on Leviticus after quite a little break. But I'm very happy to be back here. The Great Day of Atonement, probably the crescendo of the book of Leviticus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that there was a greater Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 was looking forward to something far greater than its day, Lord. It drives all our songs that we just sang, it drives our gospel, because there is a greater atonement that finished everything. We ask that you would cause that to be rooted deep into our hearts and minds today, in Jesus' name, amen. There's many passages within the New Testament where you see that Christ suffered alone. You use the phrase, when you strike the shepherd, the sheep will flee. And that was certainly true when Jesus Christ was arrested. There was no one there to accomplish atonement with him. There are many passages that point to that, but I love 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says, he himself bore our sins. Now, the double pronoun wants us to understand that it is he, Jesus, Jesus did this, but it's also showing us that there was no one else there. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who atoned for our sins. He was not helped by any person to accomplish that. It was a solidary Salvific work of Jesus Christ. He was the great high priest coming into the temple of God with his own blood that day on the cross. And it absolutely has everything to do with our passage today. Because our passage is looking forward to this greater day of atonement. And I find great joy studying this passage. Look with me at Leviticus chapter 16. We'll break this down into five or six points here. Number one, preparing to come into the presence of God on the day of atonement. Look at verses one through five with me. The Lord, now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat, and Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. And he should put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with a linen sash and attire with a linen turban, these are holy garments, and then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Well, many think that most of the laws of uncleanness came after the death of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. It seems in their day they felt that they could just come and approach God in any way, and God did not allow that and struck them. I believe God's trying here, or establishing, probably a better word, establishing a sense of awe of His holiness with His people. He wants them to see that He is holy, and that He should be approached with reverence, and he sh you should come to Him His way, not yours. Still a battle today, isn't it? Most people want to design our God. We're going to come our way. We don't like your way. We're going to come our way. But God has never been like that. Never. He has always been very clear and articulate in how you come to him, even in the Old Covenant. Well, Aaron's sons had come with this strange fire. You remember this. And they really set a bad example of how to come to God. And I think he's setting the record straight here. How are you going to come into my presence? I want you to come my way. Well, notice in verse 1, doubtlessly the death of Aaron's sons were probably still on the heart and mind and pretty fresh to a father, Aaron. And so God speaks to Moses. And Moses, you're to tell Aaron how to come in my presence. Verse 2, Aaron and 
all the succeeding high priests, because this is going to go down through time with the nation of Israel, are now instructed not to come into the holy place at any time that you please. But you are to come by invitation from God. That's how I want you to come. And he appoints the time and the place. Now notice how serious God is that he warns of even death if you don't heed my command. Notice that there in verse 2. You'll die. I already showed you. These guys came their own way and they did not come out. Come my way or die. Isn't that same true today? So many people have a designer God of some way they want to come to him and in the end they're going to die. Because they didn't come through Jesus Christ alone. They didn't come through the way, the truth, and the life. They didn't come that way. They came their own design way and in the end they will perish. That's why we preach so clearly and articulately Christ alone. And you can see that all developing in this. Now, from here on, the entire nation was now going to take this much more seriously, I think. And they did for many, many years. And Aaron was to enter in this holy of holies within this veil at this appointed time. Because as you notice, as we read that, within this veil, the cloud, the glory of God is now resting on the bema seat between the cherubims. And he's, he's there being revealed in this inaccessible, glorious light. And Aaron's going in. Now, the same is true today. Those who come into the presence of God must be led there by God. You have to come by God's invitation. Most of us grew up with invitations after sermons. I don't think they're wrong in any way, but so often we've created this idea that we tell God we're coming to you. <laughs> There's never anything in Scripture that really justifies that type of thinking. It is God who invites us. It's God who opens your deaf ears and your dead heart. It's Him that brings you to Himself. It's not true, folks, isn't it? We see that in the Scriptures everywhere. And so man does not invite himself into the presence of God. It only comes through this perfect work of Jesus Christ, the ultimate, the greater high priest. Romans 5, 1 through 10 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, now think about this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained an introduction by faith, now listen to this, into this grace in which we stand. So God has now invited us into the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ, through his blood, and we stand in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God. Spiritually speaking. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? But God invited you. I think that's what makes us worshipers here at places like River Bend that teach a full counsel and not afraid to bend our knee to God's plan of salvation. It overwhelms you that he would invite you, he would invite me into his presence. Look at verses 3 through 5. As we read this, you see these details are beginning to unfold here of, from God and instruction to Aaron what, what he was to bring in this holy presence of God. And throughout this chapter, it describes the Day of Atonement. But what's interesting enough is it never mentions the Day of Atonement in this text. It isn't until chapter 23, somewhere around, I think, 27, 28, that it uses the first time Day of Atonement. But this is what it's talking about. Now, now, as this description is going, this becomes a very solemn day and, and one of the most solemn days, if not the most solemn day of all the Old Testament offerings and feasts and fulfillment of the law. It became so significant that later on, Jewish traditions called it not the Day of Atonement, they called it the day, Yom. It was the day. Now, Clearly, God has arranged every detail with the intention to impress upon the minds of the nation the seriousness of approaching God now. And he's emphasizing the fact that man, as a sinner, has no right to access his holiness. He's emphasizing that. He's in the, he's in the temple. He's between the cherubim. 
He's a, he's a top of the mercy seat. He's perfect and sinless, and sinners do not have the right to step into his presence unless they are cleansed. And so this is now the description of how that all takes place. Notice in verse 3 that on the Day of Atonement, Aaron was to start with the blood of a bull in order to atone for his own sin and the sin of his household. Verse 4 tells us that Aaron was to clothe himself in garments of humility. You'll notice that he's not wearing his normal priestly garments. Those priestly garments reflected the glory of Israel and the glory of their God. They were arranged with all kinds of ornaments on them that reflected the tribes and the glory of the God they served. But instead, you really see Aaron down kind of to his undergarments as he comes into the presence of God. So all of that is stripped away. And he comes in in pretty simple white, most likely white, garments on. God did not want him dressed in his priestly garments, but to come before him dressed like the rest of the Levites. Because it was a day, really the Day of Atonement is a day of humiliation. And he was there to offer sacrifices for his own sin. Think about that. He's coming into the presence of God, the holiness of God, first and foremost, because he knows he's a sinner himself. And he's to take care of this for him and his household. These garments present Aaron as not his glory, but they really present him in need of reconciliation with God himself. I love that. Along with this humble dress, Aaron was to come completely washed. Most of the words as we study that seem it's complete immersion. It's, there's no sprinkling thing going on here. It's a complete bathing. It's, it's to symbolize the washing away of sin so that the one could be clean who comes in the presence of God. Notice verse 5, that it gives us some understanding that the nation was to have some kind of herd to select from. I think that's important. The animals were not to come from somebody's personal herd. It was real important, right? Because somebody could say, hey, you know, Manasseh supplied the, the scapegoat this year. You should buy sheep from us. <laughs> somebody would use it for advertising, wouldn't they? And this is where a lot of us think that those those shepherds in Luke 2 were probably guarding temple flocks. Generations and generations of these lambs that were sacrificed on behalf of the sins of the nation, that's probably what they were guarding. Now notice that their two goats were to be regarded as one sacrifice. This is a real important point. I'm going to get into this a little more when we, as we go farther in the text. This was to show how important it was that one goat, the sin goat that would be sacrificed, was no greater than the scapegoat, and the scapegoat was no greater than the sin goat. They were a package deal. They were not to be separated. Second thought tonight. The actions of the high priest on the Day of Atonement, verses 6 through 14. Let me read a few of these in and I'll paraphrase some of them for the length of the passage. Then Aaron shall offer a bull for the for this sin offering, for which, uh, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one lot for the scapegoat. <clears throat> then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot of the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot of the scapegoat fell shall present, be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now over and over in this chapter, you see this phrase, Aaron shall, Aaron shall, Aaron shall. <laughs> it says it over and over. See, it's marking this understanding that God was giving clear and, and purposeful direction for Aaron to accomplish. I think I count it at least 20 times. It says, Aaron shall do this, shall do this, shall do that. 
God is explicit in his instructions of how to approach him. Now, normally, the tabernacle would have been very busy. In fact, probably that morning, it could have been busy because there was a morning sacrifices. I'll mention that a little later. But normally, it's a very busy place with priests and Levites all doing uh, part of the offering system that's happening there. But on the day, of tab- the, day of, um, the day of atonement, the tabernacle was to be emptied. The courtyard was to be empty. There was only to be one man, one man in there and one man alone, and that's the high priest, and in this case it was Aaron. Now certainly this is a preview of the coming of Christ. Is that why I use 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 as an introduction? There's a coming Christ who alone. His disciples fled for many reasons, but one reason is there was no way they could help him do what he had to do. He had to die for our sins, and he, he had to be perfect in order to do that. So there was nobody on the earth who could help him. And so now we realize that Aaron is in this courtyard. He's about ready to go into the Holy of Holies, and he's absolutely alone. Spurgeon, writing on this passage, said this, There was none with our Lord. He trod the winepress alone. He, his own Self bore our sins in his body on the tree. He alone went in where the thick darkness covered the throne of God, and none stood by to comfort him as he tackled this. Notice in verse 7, the scene starts to shift back now to these two goats that were used in the Day of Atonement. And obviously, these two goats were to be much alike, right? There's certainly no blemishes in them, but they had to be uh, sized right and colored and, and valued equally. And you'll see in verses 8 through 10, as we read there, that Aaron's going to cast lots for these two goats. Now, thank the Lord that animals just live by instinct, right? Because if you understood, if we, if we make animals out to like people do as people, um, can you imagine, you know, man, don't roll my number. One's going to bleed out. The other one's going for a hike. But, but this is God's way of showing his sovereignty, isn't it? See, one goat was going to be given to the Lord, slain and sacrificed. The other goat was to be a scapegoat and would be released into the wilderness. And each goat had its equal importance here. And so the casting of lots was the way ancient Israel trusted in the sovereignty of God, what God wanted. We see that all the way down to the replacement of Judas with the disciple Matthias. Many believe that the two, the lots were like two stones. Some historians I read said one would say yes on it and the other would say no. But what a beautiful picture the word scapegoat is. As now we start to see this scene of these two animals. The Hebrew word for scapegoat means to entirely remove, to entirely remove. But the other goat in verse 9, notice he was to be offered to the Lord. It's, just, it's, it's a temporary Old Testament covenant, right? This was to be done year after year. In the seventh month, on the tenth day, you'll see all that towards the end, how articulate this is. This was to be done over and over. So this temporary Old Covenant, this goat had to be offered, one had to be led away, But in the New Testament, brothers and sisters, we see this term once and for all. Once and for all. This is all pointing towards that. But verses 11 through 14, and you can just skim down through that as I give you some understanding of what this passage is doing. It comes back to this bull offering for Aaron. He was to bring this bull as a sin offering, and God's instructions were clear that Aaron could only make atonement for the sins of the people after his own sins for himself and his household were atoned for. The Jewish tradition recorded what they think the prayers were, and they were passed down from generation to generation and generation. Here's the prayer. They believe something like this, that Aaron would have recited passionately, doubtlessly, over the death of this bull and its blood 
as he took it into the Holy of Holies for his own sin and the sin of his household. O God, I have committed iniquity, transgression, and sin before you. I and my household. O God, forgive the iniquities and transgressions and sin which I have committed and transgressed and sin before you, I and my household, as is written in the law of your servant Moses. And then he would quote verse 30 um, in, at the, towards the end of the text. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you will cl- be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So he would recite this. This was, this was so important that he knew that God had atoned for his sins. Now, certainly the high priest of the Old Covenant was a type pointing towards Jesus in a lot of ways. We've talked about that many times. But in this text, I want you to get this. In this text, there's a great contrast between this. He is not a type in this point. Aaron is not a type. And the reason why, because Aaron was a sinner and he had to atone for his own sin. And so Hebrews really emphasizes this. Hebrews chapter 7, listen to this, verse 26 and following. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, listen to this, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's totally different than Aaron. And any high priest that succeeded Aaron, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then the sins of the people, because this Because this, he did, here's our phrase, once for all. Boy, I love that phrase in a new covenant setting. Once for all. When he offered up himself. So my point is, Jesus bypasses this part of the law because there's no need for him to offer sin for himself. The Bible says that he was a son, pointed forever, made perfect. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 says... And not through the blood of goats and calves. See, he never brought the blood of something else to the Father. But his own blood he brought into the holy place once and for all. Now drop back to verses 12 and 13 back in our text here. And here we see Aaron now bringing incense before the Lord. So he offers this bull. He puts incense on this offering. He takes a fire pan hot full of coals throws a bunch of incense in that, and he enters into the most high holy place with the incense that creates this cloud of smoke within this small room of the most holy place. Now, this smoke would help, in a sense, shield him from the glory of God. It was a sweet aroma to God, but yet it was a protection for him because verse 13 says, lest he die. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine the pulse of the high priest as he lays his hand on that thick four-inch curtain and he's about ready to go into the presence of God with his fire pan and his blood from the bull and he's going to pull that back and he's going to step into the presence of the Shekinah glory. Man, what was his pulse like? Was his hand shaking? What would have went through his mind as he pulls it back in that first gleam coming through that haze and smoke of the glory of God? It must have been surreal, huh? Not only did he have this fire pan of coals, but most important, he had the blood of another with him. This innocent bull died, and he has that blood with him, and In verse 14, the Bible says that Aaron was to take that blood and he was to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. That's the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And you have the smoke of the incense and the radiance of the glory of God as Aaron's dripping this blood from this innocent bull on the mercy seat. It had to be quite a scene, wasn't it? Aaron knew, because Moses told him, that God in his glory is going to fill that presence of that most holy place above that mercy seat. He's going to be in that cloud and he's going to be looking down on that Ark of the Covenant as you drip that blood on that for your temporary covering of your sins. Notice the text says that he was to do this seven times. 
sprinkling the blood of atonement over the mercy seat. And just think what he's sprinkling over. It's the Ark of the Covenant, these, these hammered out cherubim, the keepers of God's holiness is, is a definition of them, and the kind of glories filling down between them. And, and the smoke of the incense has darkened that room a bit, and, and yet the light of the glory of God is shining through, and blood is being put on that top of that ark. And in that ark of the covenant are all kinds of things that remind him of the sinfulness of the nation. There's manna in there. And you think, well, was it manna there to sustain the people? Yeah, but it also brought out their grumbling nature. They grumbled against God. That manna was there also to remind them that they, they're not content with what God does, to show them that they were sinners, but also show God was kind to sinners and fed them. There's also tablets in there, aren't there, of God's perfect loving law that the nation broke before Moses could get off the mountain with, right? Those are in there. And then there's Aaron's rod that budded in response to a rebellion, an uprising against the leadership of Israel. So all that's there reminding Aaron of his own sinfulness. He, he was involved in that golden calf. He knows the sinfulness of this nation. All that's there reminding him of that. And here's God watching the blood covering the, the mercy seat and really covering Aaron's sin, granting him temporary atonement for he and his household. I say that particularly because the Hebrew word for atonement means to cover. That's what it means. And in the Old Covenant, sin was not removed, it was covered was covered by the sacrifice and offering of blood. But in the New Testament, when we get to the New Covenant, the New Testament, the idea of atonement is that our sins are not merely covered, but they are removed, they are taken away. Colossians 2, 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, there's a whole lot of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And then here's our phrase, and he has taken it out of the way. And certainly we're going to see a scapegoat taking it away. But guess what? Next year you're doing the same thing over. Because the blood of bulls and goats could not appease the wrath of God forever. Now, finally in this point here, notice in verse 14 that there was also blood sprinkled in front of the mercy seat. I thought that was interesting. I had to do a little reading on that. Most theologians that I read believe that God wanted Aaron to know that blood was the path to his mercy. Isn't that interesting? I hadn't thought about that a whole lot. He was to drip blood in front of that mercy seat, in front of that Ark of the Covenant there. And, and I think I agree with these theologians. I, I think he was reminding them, this is the pathway to mercy. Blood will atone. And certainly, we can make the connection to Jesus, don't we? Third, the sin offering and substitute for the nation in the tabernacle. Look at verses 15 through 19. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring the blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, because of the transgressions in regards to all their sins. Thus he shall do for the tent of meetings, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall enter the tent of meetings until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembling of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. That's the altar. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar and on all sides. And with his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it from the impurities of the sons of Israel. In verse 15, you now 
see that he's offered for his self and for his family the blood of this bull. And the scene now shifts back to the courtyard. You can see it, don't you? He's now before the brazen altar here, right? Where the bull has already died and now getting ready to sacrifice the first goat. And this first goat is to be offered to the Lord as a sin offering for the nation. It is to be slain and its blood is to be brought inside the veil and sprinkled seven times on and before the mercy seat, much like he did with the bull. You saw that. In verse 16, the fact that the offering had been had to be made for the holy place, it tells us that the nation had defiled the temple of God. You notice that. He's to, he's to do an offering, he's to sprinkle blood even on the tent of meetings. He's supposed, he's, he's has to make atonement for the temple. See, the presence of their guilt filled the court. You go, well, how to do it? Every time they came in guilty and offered a sin offering, they brought into the court of God their sin. And so this day, this day was a cleansing day. Nobody else there. It's time to cleanse the temple as well as the people. Once the high priest had sacrificed for his sin and he was accepted, he took this task on. He cleansed this place. Notice the language that's in verse 16. It really helps you understand the gravity of this. He shall make atonement for the holy place. Now look at this. Because of the impurities, read a little farther. Because of the transgressions, read a little farther. In regards to their sins, and then go to the end of the verse, in the midst of their impurities. There is no doubt what God thinks of sin. Four different uses of terms of sinfulness. God sees that, and he wants it cleansed to bring them into his presence. But again, this is very different than the type. This type is very different than our Lord Jesus Christ. We see, we see that the earthly temple here with Moses and Aaron has to be cleansed. But the heavenly temple never does. I, I wanted to show you this first. Take your, put your finger there in Leviticus 16 and run over to Hebrews 9 with me. There's a verse I want you to get your finger on. Nine twenty-three and following. <clears throat> While you turn, I'll drink some water. Writer of Hebrews says this, therefore it is necessary for the copy of the things, the copy, that's a really key word, you should mark that, for the copy of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. It's necessary. These are earthly copies of something that's heavenly. The earthly copies are stained, the heavenly is unstained. Notice the rest of the verse. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands that was stained, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often. He didn't do this repeatedly, as the high priest entered the holy place year after year with blood that was not their own. Now, what the Bible's reminding us here is God dwells in holiness. There's no cleansing in God's heaven. Do, do you see why he has to bring us through his son's blood? So the moment we pass away in this life, or he comes and collects us together, that we can come right into his perfect, holy estate that never needs to be cleansed, doesn't need to be cleansed after we show up, because God has cleansed us completely through Jesus Christ and brings us into the true, think about this, the greater holy of holies, right into his presence. Now, go back to Leviticus. I'm going to try to get through this. And drop down to verse 17. Notice in this verse, 
All of this takes place and there's no one there. Verse 17 says, when he goes to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meetings until he comes. There's, there's no one there. This is Aaron by himself with God. There's no one in the courtyard, no one in the tabernacle, no one in the holy place, in the most holy place. God was making it evident that the high priest alone would make this atonement. And see, for a nation seeking reconciliation with God after a year of sin, there must have been great anxiety that it all rode on one guy. I don't, I'm just, I kind of think through this, you know. They've already seen Aaron blow it pretty bad. And, and, and you know that if God doesn't go with us, if, we, if we're not appeased, if he's not appeased by our sacrifices, he's not going with us and our enemies are going to destroy us. We're never going to get to that promised land. None of those promises are going to come true. I hope Aaron doesn't screw this up. It's riding on one guy. And doubtlessly, see this high priest himself, Aaron, and the succession of men felt a massive responsibility. If he sinned, would he quench the light of Israel? Would he extinguish their hope? Would he send them into despair because God would not forgive them? See, the point is one person was entrusted with all the lives. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? One Savior entrusted with all of our lives. Isn't that amazing? Not a, not a whole group. Maybe that's the way we would think. Well, if one's good, maybe two's better. No, just one. Just one great high priest. Jesus alone hung on that cross at Calvary, and no one could draw near to help him accomplish what he had to do. He did it alone. Notice in verse 18 and 19, we're told of the purifying of the court in its, in its altar. That had to be purified as well. And I thought this strange that the altar needed to be purified. And yet, it's a place very connected with sin. This, this is where sin was confessed at this altar. This is where the substitute of sin was laid down and slain. This is where the wrath fell on this substitute. So the more I thought about this, no wonder they had to cleanse this thing. This, this is where sin died right here. And I think you find a strange combination in this place. It's a place of sin and it's a place of atonement in one place. Sin would be transferred onto that animal of that individual, in this case, the nation. And then at the same time, that, that animal would die and that sin would be atoned for. So it's a place of sin and it's a place of atoning for sin. And surely, surely this points to the magnitude of sin and the magnitude of what happened at the cross. All of our sins, past, present, and future, meets the finality of an atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ at that cross. Sins from Adam all the way to the last of the elect all flood to the cross in that moment. A place of death and, and wages and all of that comes to that cross and yet at that cross is there's one who can atone for it. What beauty. A lot of old hymns that sing come to the altar, don't we? We sing those songs. Altars were often in our Baptist churches, right? To remind us of those things. There at the altars where sin was dealt with. Never was there a place like the cross, though. The tabernacle and the brazen altar I certainly saw its share of death and sin and all of that, but there's nothing like the cross where such heinousness and hell's darkness and all sin of the redeemed found in one place, and yet that place, the cross of Jesus Christ, is where it's removed. And so I wrote this in my notes. 
the most heinous place becomes the most purest place. That's why we sing about the cross all the time. But even as the blood was applied seven times to the horns of this altar, this day of atonement would return again and again for them. It wasn't going to keep their sins away. But not with Jesus. Not with Jesus. And you notice this number seven, it often represents a perfect number in the Bible. And so the sacrifice of Jesus becomes the perfect cleansing earthly temple, right? Jesus fills it eternally, doesn't he? Fourth, and I'll move a little quicker here because we've got to wind this up. The equality of the scapegoat in the day of atonement, verses 20 through 22. When, the finish, um, when he finished atoning for the holy place in the tent meeting and the altar, he was to offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall, slay, excuse me, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. Tells you the other one's dead, right? And confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regards to all their sins. And he's to lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hands of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to a solitary land and it shall be released in the wilderness." Aaron was now to show that the atonement is really in another form. And he's doing this in order to leave no doubt that sin was taken care of, although temporarily it was taken care of. This living goat is brought forward. And I, I, I could imagine as I study Leviticus that the confessing of this sin was done loudly and maybe surrounding outside of the temple and the tabernacle courtyard and all that was many of the Israelites and they could hear him confessing the sins and iniquities and the transgressions of the nation as he pressed his hands down on this innocent goat. And doubtlessly with great humility, Aaron confesses those sins of the people. This is a cursed goat. At first you kind of think he's the lucky one, right? But he's actually a cursed goat. Under the old covenant, sin could be put away but never really eliminated. So this sin-bearing goat carries the sin of Israel and was alive somewhere out there in the wilderness. Some of the Jewish historians that I read recorded that the goat was taken at least 10 miles outside the camp and released the one taking it there stood there till it disappeared and they saw it no longer. First goat was the picture of how atonement was granted and sin forgiven because punishment fell on that innocent animal. But this second goat, this scapegoat, was the picture of the effects of the atonement. The penalty of the nation's sins were cast away, never to return in, at least till next year, and they had to do it again. But certainly as a nation, symbolically, left their sin on that goat. But here we also see a, a very strong type. Let me, let me hopefully challenge your view on this scapegoat. Let me give you some verses. Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. A scapegoat's Christ too. Certainly Christ is... The one slain, he's the one slain for us. But now this scapegoat also is Christ. The hands of the priest are transferring all of the sin of the nation. And so in Isaiah 53, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And think about this, Jesus was led into the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Mark 1.12, I think where I like this phrase a little better, Mark says it this way. Immediately, this is after his baptism, the Spirit impelled him, I think the ESV says, drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted. See, if you follow the scapegoat, he's doomed. 
He's alone. And I think the scapegoat reflects the man of sorrows. He was made to be sin. He was cursed for us. And he goes into the wilderness alone. And he would suffer great attacks by wild beasts. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And Satan is on him. And finally, when he leaves, the angels come and minister to him. See, only Jesus can fulfill both types, can he? Only Jesus can take his own blood, the lamb slain for us, can take his own blood into the temple. And only Jesus can carry the curse and fulfill it perfectly. Five, the high priest in his temporary glory. I won't read these verses because I'm running out of time here. But just follow along. After this releasing of the scapegoat, the high priest and and the one who released this goat, they were to be washed. You'll notice that. And at this time, finished burning the offering, right? They were to finish burning up the bull and the lamb and the ram. All was to be burned. The rest of it was to be taken outside the camp. You'll see that. When the atonement was finished, the high priest Aaron here in this case was to emerge from the tabernacle in glory. He was to take off the humble garment. You see that in there. He was to put back on his normal clothes that resembled the glory and beauty of God in Israel. And so on the day of atonement, the high priest was humbled in verse 4. He's to go down to these undergarments. He was seen to be spotless in verse 11, bathed and cleaned. He was to be alone, verses 11 to 14, as the only one who could come into the Holy of Holies. But in the end, he comes out in somewhat of a victorious way. He doesn't come out in his undergarments. He comes out with, a, with the ephod and with, with his hat and, I mean, all the glory of that dress. Because sins have been forgiven and there's victory. See, God's wrath was appeased. Reconciliation with God and man had been accomplished, even though momentarily. But each of these aspects could, could only be perfectly and finally done by Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes out of the grave, he meets the disciples. And in Matthew 28, 18, he says, All authority has been given unto me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For this reason that he offered himself even to the point of death, of death of the cross, God highly exalted him. See, even in this scene that is very marred and very human, as you look at Leviticus, here comes Aaron, shining bright, reflecting the glory of God and the nation, all pointing towards Jesus Christ, that at his resurrection, his father gives him everything. And he sits at the right hand. Last thought. <clears throat> the nation responds, excuse me, the nation's response of humility after the Day of Atonement. Well, Numbers 29 tells us that there were morning sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. And so the day began with worship and seeking God. But notice that the nation, as you kind of glint, glimpse through those last few verses, 29 through 31 there, is that the nation was to respond in humility, particularly in verse 29. And I think what God's doing is he's contrasting all the other holy days and high days and gatherings with the Day of Atonement. This was a day where one's soul was humbled. In fact, you'll notice in verse 31 that it was a day of fasting and rest, which, which is called the Sabbath of solemn rest. Solemn rest. God's law had led his people to humility. They needed forgiveness. They were to align themselves with their sin. They were to see that innocent victim, that they caused the death of that innocent victim. They were to see that that, that death and that blood was going to be a substitutionary sacrifice in their place. And today, you and I find great joy. And when we look at the cross, we both see what Sorrow at times, right? Maybe, maybe we see our own sin there and, and it causes us to be solemn about it. But we don't stay there and we see the victorious work of Christ. And so when you look at the Day of Atonement, there's death and cursings and 
all of this going on. But at the end comes the high priest victorious out in the dress of God. It's amazing. All pointing forward. Well, Jews today, some still observe the Day of Atonement. They call it Yom Kippur. Typically, it's a day of fasting. The Mishnah added four more things to the list that's found there in chapter 16. There's no bathing on that day. There's no putting on oil on your body anywhere. You can't wear shoes, and there's no sexual relationships on that day. And sadly, even if a Jewish person observes all these things in Yom Kippur, they have no sacrifice for eternal sin because they reject Jesus as their Messiah. We love our missions to Israel, Jews for Jesus, Zion, my glory, that work so hard to show them who Jesus is. But it's not just the Jews. Most pagans reject religious practices, right? They believe there's some kind of afterlife, possibly, but they're going to provide their own way to get there. But just in closing, think about this. Only Jesus, only in Jesus can you lose the heavy burden of sin and all the religious restraints that man has created. Only Jesus. Only in Jesus can the day of our salvation be made into an eternal Sabbath. Think about that. Hebrews chapter 4, we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Your day of your salvation, you enter into an eternal Sabbath with God. You rest from your work because Jesus did it all. And finally, only Jesus can take our mourning over sin because that's what this day was about and turn it to unspeakable joy. That's what Jesus does for us. Oh, I don't feel like I covered nearly what I could have in that chapter. So many wonderful things. I hope you go back and read it tonight. Father, thank you for our time in the Word. We thank you that the Old Testament is this great trail to something greater. And when we read it, we can quickly see your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the greater priest, entering into a greater tabernacle with a greater and more perfect sacrifice. So Lord, we thank you for these and you give us encouragement to live for you. We've entered into an eternal Sabbath. We rest from our works because Jesus' work was enough. And so help us live like we're resting in his work. Thank you for each and every one that's here tonight. We pray for those who are still home and not well, Lord, who want to be with us. Lord, please heal them and help them, Lord. We pray for the Carswell family. Thank you for their folks that loved you. Lord, be with them. Encourage their hearts, Lord. I pray for others who are going through difficult trials, Lord. Minister to them. May your word be ever living and sharp to them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.